let's turn to Book of Revelation, chapter one. So over the the summer, we have worked our way through the first three chapters, focusing on the seven letters to the churches. And uh, I want to thank the elders and interns for their hard work in prepping these sermons. This is not an easy task to get in and figure out the the history of some of these cities, and there's just a lot of digging, a lot of uh, stuff that when you first read it, you're like, what in the world does that mean? And uh, so I'm thankful for their faithfulness and willing to prepare and bring to us uh, the best that they um, are able to do, and that's, the, um, that's what we're going for. I've talked with the band and the elders and different leadership groups here about, you know, the, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, you you brought the best possible animal that you could bring. And for us in preaching and, and hopefully musical leadership, for your community group leaders, for everything that we're doing, we're striving to make sure we're, we're bringing the absolute best that we can do um, to, to really work hard and make sure that's the case. And so I'm thankful for their uh, stewardship this summer and uh, all that stuff. So tonight we kind of just uh, bring to a close this study. And um, one of the things about the seven letters that, that I think is uh, a part of the reason why we, we have this in the Bible, is that we, it's, it's the only thing that we have from Jesus after the church was born. You know, so he, he ascends, and the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and the church is born then. And uh, so we have a lot of him before the church was born. This is what we have after the church has been up and running for a while. So about 60 years into the life of the, the New Testament church, um, we have him chiming in, and so there's a, it's a unique gathering of, of texts here, and uh, it really it says a lot to us. And um, and I don't, according to what a lot of our research pointed to, each of the seven churches would have read the other six letters as well. So every congregation not only heard their own um, the commendation, the rebuke, the warning, the solution, the promises for them, they also got to hear about the other ones too. And uh, I think for us to sit here, it, it, I think there's something timeless about these seven letters. But I've never really been able to figure it out. And here's the only thing I, I think coming out of it and going forward, I think, um, I believe that each of us as believers we need to be able to find ourselves somewhere in those seven letters as we walk with Christ on this earth throughout our lives. So there may come a time when, when you are, you're a little bit like the church in Laodicea. You know, there's an ineffectiveness about your life. Um, there may be a time when you're a little bit more like, like the church in Smyrna where you are being faithful in the midst of some really difficult stuff and it's a lot of goodness there. There may come a time when you're like Ephesus and you have forsaken that love you had at first. You know, I think as we walk with Christ on this earth at different stages and different points, we'll be able to relate to the struggles and the issues that these different churches were facing. So it makes sense for, in a congregation like ours, there are probably some weeks that clicked with you more than others. And I think that's part of the point. Is I think there's a timelessness there. So... I'm not sure which one resonated the, the most with you, but that's not a random thing. And it had nothing to do with the person preaching. It wasn't like, oh, this particular person's sermon really, really met me well. So it must have been like he was a really good communicator that night. Not, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, I think it comes down to the fact that that's a part of why we have these letters is for 
Christ to be able to diagnose us in a way that, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to, to always hear his voice, you know, and to discern, is this him talking or is it just me kind of making my voice sound like his voice and that kind of stuff. So here I think we have seven letters that we can have in front of us all the time. And I think that there's a, is at any point we should be able to, to read through them and be like, yeah, this is where I am right now. I'm kind of like the church in Philadelphia right now. Um, and that kind of stuff. So finding yourself in those seven letters is very important. Um, so I was able to participate uh, differently this summer uh, in, in, in this, this study. And there were definitely times when I found myself at different places in these letters, some more than others or whatever. Um, and I would, I would say that I've learned a lot as a son, and I've learned a lot as a brother. I learned a lot as a son, like vertically. He's taught me a lot about my relationship with him through these letters. I've also learned a lot as a brother in a horizontal sense, um, as a part of this family as well. And so tonight what we're going to do is I'm just going to kind of, kind of bring this to a close. And I want to use this one part of this verse to kind of uh, sum up a couple of the things and maybe be able to give some, some shape to that. And so, again, I think you'll find yourself even in this summary somewhere. Um, but that's the challenge for us, is where, where are you? The temptation would be, which of these seven churches looks just like ours? And that's just not going to happen. I don't think that's even the point. I think we're supposed to be able to, to find ourselves in there and see what Jesus would lead us to and let that be a discipleship moment for us with him. Uh, so look in chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace... From, from him who is and was and who is to come. Okay, that's God, obviously. Uh, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. All right, that's Holy, the Holy Spirit. Um, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's Jesus, okay? Um, that was a joke, but not a good one. Um, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. All right? In, in his opening, which is, we find this in the New Testament a good bit, there's, like, the Trinity is brought to the front. The, that the Father, Son, Spirit are involved, all of them, in what's going on. And so these letters are from Christ, absolutely. But this is a, like, this is a collaborative effort from like, our God who is three and who is also one. But look at the, the next part. This is, this is where I want to focus tonight. The second part of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom... Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's, that's solid right there. So what I want to do is I want to use those, those three things. He loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom of priests. Um, I want to look at those three aspects that we see in these letters to kind of give some closure to what we've been talking about. So let's look at the, at the first one. Um, to him who loves us, these letters are filled with, uh, filled with his love for his church, for his bride. And sometimes it's, it's hard to think in terms of, you know, that we're the bride of Christ, that he's married to us. But remember, marriage is a shadow of that. Okay? The church is not a shadow of marriage. Marriage is a shadow of this reality. Okay? We have to make sure we have the order correct. So when we're trying to understand, sometimes it doesn't, doesn't really click. But 
that's because that's the, the issue is on our side of things. Because it's real easy to say, well, marriage, man, marriage is, ain't, ain't, it's all cracked up to be. And in our world, you know, there's a lot of struggles and a lot of issues with marriage and that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, because it's a shadow of something that's real. It, it's not the real thing that Christ shadows. So in these letters, we see his love for us perfectly demonstrated. And there's, there's two things that we find in each of the, in, across the letters as a group. All right? He's affirming the good, and he's correcting the bad. We see him affirming the good, and so in, in all these letters except for one, he finds, finds the good things they're doing, and he tells them about it. He doesn't just jump right to the negative stuff. He's affirming. Now, a lot of us, we would, we would connect that with love pretty easily. You know, It's like, well, yeah, that's when people love you. They tell you good things about yourself. It's like, yeah, okay. So let's not skip over the fact that Jesus is telling his bride good things about her. Sometimes we get caught up in this, this idea that, that Jesus is upset with us or he's always, you know, he's always frustrated with us, but... We don't see that here. And in the one, the one church where he, he doesn't give an affirming word, um, that's very strategic on his part. But he's affirming the good things. And even in the, even in, uh, the church in Sardis where he's kind of reaching a little bit, you know, he's going to find something that's good. So if one of the things, like as far as like finding ourselves in these letters... Uh, if you walk around and you live your life feeling like God's mad at you all the time and you can't do anything right and he's constantly frustrated and all this kind of stuff, these letters contradict that. He's affirming to his bride. He's also, he's corrective. When there's something that's not good, he tells them. He loves them enough to do that. It's an indication of his love and his desire for his church to flourish. This is not a negative. Even, even like some of, the, some of his rebuke is really, it's really strong. And maybe even, it might even feel harsh a little bit sometimes. But, but that's love too. That he loves us enough to tell us when we're being dumb. He loves us enough to tell us like, hey, you're on a bad trajectory here. This is going to lead to a lot of pain. A lot of difficulty. He loves us enough to correct us. So whether, whether it's helpful for you to think about marriage, or maybe it's, it's easier on the, on the rebuke side of it, maybe it's easier to think like a parent. You know? As a parent, you, just, you discipline your children, you correct them, not because you hate them, but because you love them. If you hated them, you, wouldn't, you just let them do whatever they want all the time, because you don't really care about them. But you love them, so there are times when you tell them no, and there are times when you... Um, whip them, hopefully, you know, that kind of stuff. There's just times when that stuff happens, but it's love. And certainly when you're a child, it doesn't feel like love. But as you get older, you start to realize like, oh, I'm so glad that my parents didn't let me just do whatever I wanted all the time. And then if you get to the point where you have kids, then you probably even understand it even more. And maybe there's a point where you apologize to your own parents for, you know, all the grief that you brought them or whatever. But, um, and it's almost like in, in marriage, it's easy to think of, to look at this and see the affirming of the good as like, yeah, that's kind of a marriage analogy. And the uh, correction of the bad, that's kind of a parent thing or whatever. But we have to just merge them all together. 
And realize that that exists in love. Because in a marriage, of course, you are hopefully affirming the good in your spouse. But hopefully you're also correcting the bad. Hopefully you love your spouse enough to look them in the eye and say, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And if you don't, then you need to mature in that aspect of your marriage. Hopefully, as a parent, you're not only correcting all the time, but you're affirming your kid constantly. And the perfect model of that is what, how Jesus affirms and corrects us. We see it in these seven churches, and we see it in our own lives as well. This affirmation and correction only happens when there is a deep relationship there. Shallow relationships are, are going to have one or the other, Right? In a shallow relationship, let's say like let's say you just started dating someone. So of course you affirm a lot and you don't correct a whole lot, right? Because you don't want to mess this up. So it's all good things, all good things, all good things. But as the relationship furthers down that road and maybe deepens, maybe you break up. But if you keep going and you end up getting married, what what begins to work its way in there? Correction. Because the relationship is getting deeper. That's what Christ does here with us. It has both of those things because there's a deep relationship that's there. In every letter, he says, I know your works. He doesn't say, I've heard about this. I heard through the grapevine that this was going on. It's like, no, I know your works. Because he said he walks among the lampstands. Like, he's a part of things. And there's a deep enough love for him to affirm the good and correct the bad. Then that has to be the case in our lives, silence on either front is not love. love. Love brings both of those things to the table, not just one or the other. They're both there. So he uses this powerful imagery at different points in the letters. And I hope that, I know that probably everyone wasn't here every single week, but I hope that these like, podcasts are useful to you. But we need to, we need to understand the, the powerful imagery that he is giving us to demonstrate his love and commitment to us. The standing at the door and knocking. You know, that he's the open door. The forsaking of the love that you had at first. The watchmen on the wall that failed to keep guard and therefore were attacked. Um, the, the stone, the, the stone with your name on it. With just a new name that he will give you. Um, these things are on purpose. These are images that he's... Is helping us understand his deep leadership and his love and his commitment to us. In every single letter, he, he closes with this promise. It's to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, he makes promises. See, he is committed to us. He's committed. When you're committed, you're not afraid to point out the bad and to lead in the way everlasting. When you're committed, you're not afraid to affirm the good. When there's a deep relationship that's filled with commitment, those things are all present. So he loves us, and we see it in these letters. Earthly love would have, like five out of these seven, he would have given up. Would have absolutely given up. But he's devoted to his bride. He's devoted to you. And to me, 
And so we need to come out of this summer with a deeper understanding of his love for us and to be able to see in the times when, he is, when there's discipline or correction, when there is a deep conviction that feels like a six-ton weight is just sitting on, on top of you, that that is love. He's not afraid of our struggles. He's not afraid of the worst things we have to bring to the table. He's not afraid of the the weirdest, strangest things that we have not confessed to other people and have not brought to him, and we think we can hide it, but we know that we can't, but we still kind of do sometimes. He doesn't get weirded out by that. That his love for, for the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia that he was really affirming to is just as deep as his love for Ephesus and for Sardis and for Laodicea, which he was filled with rebuke for. It's the same, it's the same love. It's easy for us to rank them one through seven. Who is he the happiest with or whatever? It's not, it's not like that. He loves us and he is committed to us. Why do you think he, he closed each one of those messages with the, like, don't forget the promise that I've made. Seven, seven times in these letters, he, he offers these different kinds of promises. And when you go to the last couple of chapters of Revelation, every single one of them come true. He doesn't make a promise without keeping it. We, we fail in our commitments all the time, and I get that. But he doesn't, and he won't. And so one of the things we have to walk out of with this summer is like, man, he loves us. We also have to look at the way he loves us. Sometimes it's easy to get all worked up about the fact that he loves us. But more amazing than that is specifically the way it happens. You know, John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Growing up in church, man, we gravitate toward the everlasting life part, you know. And the love part. And the point of that whole verse is like, no, he loved the world this much that he would sacrifice his own son to buy you back. And then make a commitment to you that no matter how dumb you are, he will meet you there, he will lead you forward, and to the one who conquers, he will give all these things. And he'll write it in a book and make sure you have it and you can read it, and you can memorize it. Make sure that you know you didn't earn it. You're not going to unearn it. Stay the course. See his goodness. Recognize the way that he loves you. All these churches that had so much weird stuff going on, and that's one of the steady messages. Whether correction or affirmation, it's I love you, I love you. I love you. I'm committed to you. I make these promises to you. Stop doing this because it's going to bring you pain. Keep doing this because it's bringing you goodness. It's allowing you to flourish. These letters are filled with love. And the same thing for you and the same thing for me. And as we walk through life, He brings that to us. And so we you got to ask. you got to let him. you got to let him bring affirmation. you also got to let him bring correction. So that's the first thing. To him who loves us. The second thing. To him who's, who loves us and has freed us 
from our sins by His blood. That's the way. That's how He's loved us. That's the degree that He's willing to go to to demonstrate His love for us. He would love us and free us from our sins. The, the rebukes that we see in these letters, um, kind of the, the behind-the-scenes message with, with each one of them is, is really kind of this. Um, I think he's saying, hey, you know that's not who you are anymore. I've freed you from that. These things that you're gravitating toward, these idols that you're forming and worshiping, these, these things that are distracting you away from me, that's not, that's not who you are. That's who you used to be when you lived in bondage to sin and self-centeredness. But now, I've freed you from that. So within each of these letters, when he brings rebuke, that's kind of a part of one of the underlying messages here. It's like, hey, that's not, that's not what, who I freed you to become. That's not consistent with your identity. Several years ago, me and Joe, Joe's my brother, and uh, after one of the hurricanes, my parents call one day and they're like, hey, there's this really cool dog that's Apparently, I got lost in, during the hurricane or something, got out and has been wandering in our back part of the neighborhood for like the past week or so. Everybody's kind of been feeding her and stuff, and she's like really sweet and really whatever. Y'all think y'all want her? Because we've got to figure out what to do with her. So Joe was like, absolutely. So he goes and brings home this dog, and I get home, and we're, this dog, is, she's an Australian shepherd. She's beautiful, fun. So we're like, we've got to figure out what to name her. And so we just start throwing out names. Names and names and names. and um, We're like, let's just say names until something makes us laugh. And whatever makes us laugh, that's our name. And so we got to Wheezy uh, as the name that made us laugh. Um, it d- didn't make you laugh, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> Wheezy was the name that made us laugh. And uh, it was like part tribute to the Jeffersons, um, part tribute to our state, uh, that kind of stuff. So for whatever reason... Wheezy was, was her name, and so uh, this dog, was, she was amazing, and uh, like Aussies are super smart, but she kept like getting out. She kept leaving, and so it was a daily occurrence, me or my brother walking around our neighborhood yelling for Wheezy, uh, which really helps you connect well with your neighbors, by the way. Uh, the next dog I had, I named her Gilly, so I went in a worse direction than a better direction as far as screaming out your dog's name in the neighborhood, but... Um, Every day, we'd come home, and it was, that was what you did. Like, let's go find Wheezy, because she got out. She kept digging out, jumping out. We, don't, we really couldn't figure it out. And uh, it got to where it was, like, we'd find her, like, in just the extreme part of the other side of the neighborhood or whatever, just it, whatever, super irritating. And we would get home, and we would, we'd find her, and we'd get her back, and we would, like, kind of, like, look her in the face, you know, like, why do you keep leaving? You hit the jackpot, for a dog that's just living on her own, having to scrounge and beg for food, you hit the jackpot. Like two dog lovers, right? Who are going to feed you? We're going to get you. All, we got you all your shots. And this is like this is you don't understand how good you have it. And she kept leaving. She wouldn't listen to us. And we kept trying to to like convince her that this was a safe place, and she didn't have to worry about where her next next meal would come from, and. Um, no fights with other dogs, and no, this, 
No, just nothing. Like, everything was good. Like, this is the best place that you could land, and she just didn't get it. And I remember during one of me and Weezy's heart-to-heart talks, just kind of felt like, like, man, this, it's just like my relationship with the Lord, constantly, you know? Like, I keep running to this for security or for satisfaction or for pleasure of some sort or whatever. I keep running to these different things, different things, and it's like every day the Lord, He's like, seeks me out, finds me, convicts me, and looks me in the eye, just like I would with Weezy. He's like, what are you doing? This is not who you are. This is who you used to be. Do you realize how good you have it? Do you realize that you hit the jackpot? There are all these false gods and all these lies that are out there and all these things that are empty and dead, and I'm the one true God who is alive and has sought you, paid the price to buy you back, given you a new identity, has made you alive, and is willing to walk with you through all of life to teach you how to live in this new reality, in this new kingdom. And I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That no matter where you run to, you're not going to outrun me. You're not going to hide from me. I'll never wonder where you are. There's so much goodness here, and you just can't get it yet. And the thing is, Wheezy's a dog. We knew why she, wasn't, why she didn't understand that. There was this inability to communicate with her. And so we knew we're just going to have to teach her. And eventually she'll either just run away and we can't find her, or she'll learn to trust us. And then one day she'll get to where we, we, couldn't, we couldn't get rid of her if we wanted to, you know. But see, with Jesus, he's able to communicate with us. He's able to speak to us. He's able to lead us, even in specific ways like these letters. And that's a part of what we're, I think what we're supposed to take from this. He's like, look at these seven, seven groups of Christians living in these different kinds of cities. And look at all the things that were distracting them and that they were running to. And look how, look how dumb they were. Here we are, hundreds of years later, being like, man, I can't believe Laodiceans would do that. And I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And, and then he kind of grabs us and looks us in the face and says, you're kind of like that. You're kind of like this group right here. You're kind of like the Ephesians who, first, they were, they'd forgotten the love they had at first. You're kind of like the church in Thyatira who was seduced away. You're kind of like Pergamum. You're filled with compromise. You're kind of like Laodicea. Ineffective. Like lukewarm water. These letters tell us, I freed you from those sins by my blood. I died so that you wouldn't be seduced away, so that you wouldn't compromise, so that you wouldn't have to live an ineffective life that doesn't know the Lord, so that that love that you had at first would just continue to flourish and grow. That's not who you are anymore. And what's amazing is that he doesn't, he doesn't scold us and yell at us from heaven but he meets us in our struggles with perfect strength and unfailing love and infallible leadership leading us into abundant life every moment 
of every day. That's who he is. He's going to these churches that are so messed up, and he's saying, come on back. Come back to me. I'm going to affirm this. I'm going to correct this. I'm going to give you the solution. I'm going to warn you about where this is headed. I'm going to make you this promise. But you need to understand that I love you, and I've freed you from all that stuff. So quit returning to it. Quit acting like you don't have me in your life. Just look at me and recognize what I've done for you. He does that for us. With these seven churches, that kind of leadership and goodness, we experience it too. He loves us. He's freed us from our sins by His blood. The third point. He's made us a kingdom priest to His God and Father. He's made us a kingdom. Not just a kingdom, but a kingdom of priests. So priests in the Old Testament, they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people as kind of a relational bridge between the people and God. Jesus comes in. He offers a sacrifice of himself, representing God and man. He connects us back to our Father again and invites us into the priesthood. So we go out into this world, into this city, where we do the same thing, where we are priests to one another and to people who don't know him. So to be a kingdom of priests, in a sense, means that that we have a vision for what life in our city is supposed to look like. A vision for what life in our city is supposed to look like. So we go out and we are that bridge. We're interceding. We're paving the way. We're demonstrating what agape love looks like. We're, we're bringing the kingdom near to the workplace and to the home and to the neighborhood and to the school and wherever it is that we go. In that moment, the kingdom is coming near and people they need to know that. There needs to be a sense of that. So that's what we do. That's what priests do. So here we are, this kingdom of priests. And two of the churches, I think, really understood this well. I think that Smyrna, Philadelphia, they, they, they got it. The other five, had kind of, they got it a little bit, but they had lost sight of, of some things that I think are important for us uh, as we kind of close out this series. Three things I wrote down in regard to being a kingdom of priests. Five of these cities, I'm sorry, five of these churches, number one, uh, they forgot the role that they play in the city. They forgot the role that they're supposed to play, you know? City on a hill, salt, light, bringing the kingdom near, a priest in the workplace and in the home and all those things. They kind of lost sight of what they were supposed to be doing. And we, we, cannot, we cannot do that. That's a part of what he's correcting. And honestly, that's a, I think that's a part of why he's brought us into this kind of format with our community groups of talking about, like, who's he sending you to? Who's he sending you to? As we get this steady reminder of, like, oh, yeah, we're, we're sent. He gathers us in this room, and then he sends us back out. And it's not random people you work with or live with or live 
next to or come in contact with as you live your life. Those things aren't random. So five of these churches kind of lost sight of that. We cannot. We will not. We have to remind each other. You have to remind me. I have to remind you. That's a part of what we should do as brothers and sisters who are priests, is that as we go, we are reminded every day. So maybe that changes how you start your day. Maybe that changes how you end your day. Maybe that changes what your lunch break looks like. I don't really know. But five of them lost sight of that, and we cannot. We must learn from their distraction. That's the first thing. Second thing, um, five of these churches stopped being peculiar in how they live their lives. It's such a difficult thing, I think, uh, to discern at all times how am I supposed to interact with my culture in this situation? You know, Francis Chan, a few years ago, he talked about, he phrased it, of knowing when to be weird and when to fit in. That there are times when we should fit in with what's going on and not be like the weirdo Christian, right? And then there are other times when we're supposed to stand out. There's supposed to be this difference. And it's not always black and white. I mean, sometimes it is. It's very clear cut at times what we're supposed to be engaged in and what we are not supposed to be engaged in culturally and just as we live in our city. But it's, sometimes it's that gray area that I think got some of these churches in trouble. In these cities where there was idolatry, you know, it kind of got intermingled a little bit. In Thyatira, where the, the unions were such, a, such an important part of how the city worked, you know, they, it kind of got, got gray for them for a little bit. Eating food sacrificed to idols, it got kind of gray. And so they stopped being able to discern, how do we live in our city with all these things that are out there? And probably they stopped asking for Jesus' leadership in the gray stuff. Maybe in the black and white stuff, too. But I think for us, you know, it's like, okay, do I murder someone or not? Black and white, don't do it, right? And there are times it's like, I don't, should I go here or should I not go here? Should I be a part of this conversation? Should I not be a part of this conversation? Should I laugh at this? Should I not laugh at this? Should I see this movie? Should I not see this movie? Should I eat or drink this or should I not eat or drink this? You know, should I pass on this juicy bit of information I just got or should I not? You know, that, all those kinds of things. And I think a lot of times we're just, we, we don't ask him in. We don't ask for his leadership. And there are plenty of times when that leads to the rebuke that we get, you know, that correction, which is a form of love, yes, but shouldn't we be learning and growing and, like, isn't that something Jesus desires for us? Yes, I think it is. He understands the battle of how to be peculiar in the right ways. He gets it. He walked this earth. He understands. And he will lead you. He will lead me. I don't want to be a church that's confused about stuff. You know? I don't want to be a church that doesn't know how to discern the gray. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be, I don't want to pastor that. I don't want to, whatever. None of us want to be Laodicea or Ephesus, right? None of us do. We want to be the ones that were affirmed. We want to be the ones who knew how to engage the culture in a way that brought glory and honor to the Lord. That's what, that's what we want to do. 
But in Baton Rouge, we got so much around us that's distracting us, and vying for our attention, and lying to us constantly. And when you have this heart for the people you work with, and the people that you live around, and you really desire to live like a missionary, that puts you in situations sometimes where you really need the voice of Jesus to help you discern things. So ask Him. See that leadership of loving you, freeing you from your sins by His blood, and He's made you a priest, a part of a kingdom, and He's sending you out. You think He's going to do that without equipping you? Of course not. You think He's not going to meet you in the moment and help you discern? Of course He will. We've got to ask Him. You've got to, want, you've got to invite that in in the moment. And then when you, when you make the wrong decision, you've got to bring that to Him as well. Be like, man, I messed that one up. He's like, don't forget, I love you. Freed you from your sins. Made you a promise. I'm committed to you. This is a deep relationship. Let me coach you through this. So much of this is the 23rd Psalm being lived out. All throughout these letters, the 23rd Psalm kept coming up about the goodness of the Lord and the the strength of the Lord and the strategy by which he, He plans things and guides our lives and even when we walk through the worst life has to bring, he's there. I mean, there's just so much that is prevalent in this. I think these seven letters, I almost went in that direction tonight, of paralleling these seven letters in the 23rd Psalm, and maybe I'll write a book about it one day. But I didn't do it, but you seem to know there's tons of stuff in there. Three things. They forgot the role in their city. They, didn't, they stopped knowing how to be peculiar. The last thing, five of these churches became convinced that Jesus alone was not enough. That just Jesus wasn't enough. They had to add to it idol worship. They had to add to it a job of some sort that required them to compromise. They had to add to it and add to it and add to it. Materialism and and add to it, and add to it. They became convinced that just Jesus wasn't enough. It had to be him and all this other stuff. And he loves them enough to say, no, that's not really how this works. That's not how I made you. So he looks him in the eye, and he says, you, you know, you don't need that stuff, right? I made you a kingdom of priests, You have everything that you need. I'm sending you to people who don't know that. They think that they need all this other stuff. They think they need material goods, and um, they think that they need all these other kinds of idols, and I'm sending you to them to let them know that those idols are dead, and I'm alive, and that I've made a way for them, and I'm sending you to them to lead them to me. That's what's important here. But you've got to believe it too. And all these rebukes, and you're just convinced that they had to have more. And Jesus is very simple with us. Because he made us to just need him. That's, that's our one need. It's our, the one need of our souls. And when we have him, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And that is a lifelong lesson that his church learns and learns and relearns and forgets and learns again and all that kind of stuff. That's a part of it, and that's what we see. And so he's enough. 
He loves us, has freed us from our sins by His blood, made us a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. His faithfulness is amazing. And His faithfulness to these seven churches is the same faithfulness He brings to us as a congregation and to you as an individual and to me. So we find ourselves as sons and daughters and as brothers and sisters. These letters are filled with His goodness. And so sometimes the, the sermon is basically just being like, man, isn't Jesus awesome? Sometimes we need that. We need to be able to boil it down to just, just that much. And so I hope this summer has been good. I hope that you were able to find yourself at some point in these letters, or maybe a couple of points, maybe even tonight in this summary. But when you find yourself, you need to recognize that Jesus is meeting you there too. And where, what you do with this and where this goes from here, I don't really know. But I hope that we remember love and freedom and kingdom and these big ideas as we go forward as well. So we're going to sing a little bit and we're going to respond to his goodness. All right, so let's stand together. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I am grateful for, um, for these seven congregations and for the way that you help us to learn from them all these years later. Um, thank you for letting us see how much you love them. We see you walking out your commitment to them. You're not bailing on them. You're not, uh, you're not turning your back. You're not going back on your commitment in any way. But you've made a promise and you will fulfill it. And I'm thankful, God, that we can see that. And for the wide spectrum of examples that we see. We see these congregations that are they're not all getting it right. Some are, and that's very encouraging. And some are just completely just dropping the ball. And thankful to know that wherever we are, corporately and individually, that you are there in fullness and power because of your love and your commitment. So I thank you for your faithfulness to them and the way that we really can apply that same faithfulness to ourselves. For those who are very resistant to being loved by you unconditionally, I pray, God, you would use this stuff tonight and these letters to, to look them in the eye and to help them to, to see and hear. But you would help us to know that we've been freed from these things that we tend to run to. We thank you for the rebuke and correction that comes when, when we've been giving into idolatry, when we've been seduced into these other weird things when we've compromised when we've rebelled from you we thank you for your gentleness but also for your the fact that you love us enough to not let us flounder like that and for those who are struggling with this god i pray that you would 
Just draw them back in. Help them to see how good you have it. To see your goodness and your mercy. And pray, God, that we would just be able to, even just in these last two songs, to just respond to the things you're stirring in us. That we as a bunch of priests just get geared up to be sent out. So help us to respond to you. Not to the song, not to the band, not to whatever, or to you and you alone.